Political talk during the holidays? Well, that's a real ratings booster. They're failing for months to reach an agreement. This morning, congressional leaders are nearing a deal that could provide much-needed relief to struggling Americans hit hard by this pandemic. More help is on the way. Moments ago, in consultation with our committees, the four leaders of the Senate and the House finalized an agreement. There will be another major rescue package for the American people as our citizens continue battling this coronavirus this holiday season. They will not be fighting alone. We've agreed to a package of nearly $900 billion. It is packed with targeted policies that help struggling Americans who've already waited entirely too long. After a year full of bad news, finally we have some good news to deliver to the American people. Make no mistake about it, this agreement is far from perfect. But it will deliver emergency relief to a nation in the throes of a genuine emergency. That stunning move overnight from President Trump blasting the $900 billion COVID relief bill. It really is a disgrace. $85.5 million, $134 million, $1.3 billion, $25 million, $40 million, $154 million, $7 million, $25 million, $2.5 million, $2 million, I don't think he realizes, but he's actually talking about the wrong bill there. Reef fish management. The Jay Doherty Podcast, episode number 141, Confusing Division. Today on the Jay Doherty Podcast. These past two weeks, Republicans, Democrats, Trump, Trump's team, and many members of Congress all disagreed or were just plain confused over the direction of the COVID-19 stimulus and the coinciding omnibus package. As Democrats pushed for more money and individual payments, the president, breaking with traditional conservative philosophy and going against the arguments of his own negotiators, agreed with the Democrats. But before getting his way, he signed the bill into law. The divisions, subdivisions, and subdivisions of the subdivisions, of which there are many, are broken down in this episode. Also, as the COVID-19 vaccine distribution appears to be going well, the political division of who gets it first is just as relevant. Some of the elites on Capitol Hill and in Washington, D.C., many of whom would be last in line to receive it if they were not public officials, are getting it now. Is that a smart political move to increase the public's confidence or an arrogant snatch from those who need it most? We'll try to answer all that and more on episode number 141 of the J. Podcast. You're listening to the Jay Doherty Podcast. And that is correct, everyone. Thank you very much for being here. This is the Jay Doherty Podcast. It is episode number 141. Thank you very much for being here. It is currently late on a Tuesday, December 29th. It's 11.13 p.m. as we begin today's episode, and I appreciate you being here. And uh, listening, thank you very much. There is a lot of news to get to. I apologize for the brief hiatus there over the Christmas uh, holiday. And uh, as we go up towards New Year's, and uh, if you celebrate Christmas or Hanukkah or any of the many holidays that took place uh, in the past week or ever, I wish you a very happy holiday. And thank you very much uh, for uh, tuning in to today's show. So before we get to any of the news, uh, the majority of which will be about uh, the COVID-19 relief bill, the coinciding omnibus package, which the president and the media and everyone in the world seems to have a very difficult time distinguishing between because they're two separate bills. They're being pushed and passed together for the sake of efficiency uh, and also sort of, you know, to 
at least nudge the president in the right direction. There's a little bit more weight on him if he doesn't sign the if if he doesn't sign both uh, if he doesn't sign it because you know if there's something that really makes him mad, for example, or makes him pleased in one of the bills, for example, the COVID-19 uh, stimulus bill, if he doesn't sign that, then the government will, the government will shut down or would have already shut down uh, yesterday, I, I believe, if he had not signed uh, the, the coinciding omnibus bill, which is attached and appended to the, uh, co- the uh, coronavirus relief bill. So, there is a lot of political poker being played beyond just the structure of these bills, which we'll talk about all of that and more in just one second. But first, we must do our routine quote of the day, something with mild relation to the episode. Uh, but as always, quote of the days do not imply that I agree with them. So the, the quote of the day today is from John F. Kennedy, who's the 35th president of the United States, and it is about negotiation. It is as follows. Let us never negotiate out of fear, but let us never fear to negotiate. And I think that is a very relevant quote to uh, the many, many, many days of negotiation that have been happening uh, about this whole entire COVID-19 relief bill and the omnibus bill. And the omnibus bill is sort of just a fancy way of saying the bill that is supposed to fund the government. It is the routine bill that gets passed every single year to fund the government. It is the the uh, determiner of what, and I know that's not a real word, it is the uh, sort of the thing that determines whether or not uh, the government should shut down or not, depending on what the what the president does or does not sign it. There's a lot of a lot of stuff in there uh, that may or may not have anything to do with funding the government because there's just a lot of political you know jabs in there on the left and the right. But that's essentially what the whole omnibus package is. I just think going into this episode, and I'm going to talk about it more in a second, it's important to distinguish between both. But we're going to pick off structurally for this episode. Uh, beginning where we ended last episode. We ended last episode talking about where the COVID-19 bill was going. It seemed that congressional Democrats and Republicans had essentially reached a deal. That was the word on the street from the media. But it was only later that day that uh, the, the vote was passed almost unanimously on both sides, and the bill was sent to the president's desk, uh, who then would soon bash it <laughs> right before he headed down to Mar-a-Lago for his Christmas vacation. We're going to talk about the bashing and what actually ended up happening. Spoiler alert, really nothing happened as a result of his bashing it. Uh, he just delayed the bill. Uh, and we're going to talk about all of that in one second. But to recap, because I think this whole entire scenario, this whole entire uh, back and forth between Democrats and Republicans that we just saw with this COVID-19 stimulus is a perfect example of the just lunacy of Donald J. Trump and uh, the way that he he he's, he de- he sort of handled this entire situation. A uh, lot of contradictions, a lot of surprises, and really more than anything, and I will be, and I, I sort of was flabbergasted because really a lot of confusion. I have been very angry with Trump. I've been uh, upset with things that he's done. I've been happy with things he's done, but I've never really been confused with what he's done. And this was the perfect culminating moment. Perhaps one of the best emblems of his exit <laughs> was this very, very, very weird, uh, just the way he's handled this entire COVID-19 relief bill, the one that he's going, that he just signed, actually, spoiler alert, um, before he leaves office. But I'm just going to walk through exactly what happened since it's been sort of a while and I haven't talked about it on this episode yet. So according to uh, Andrew Taylor, who's a reporter from the AP, uh, Congress passed $900 billion pandemic relief package that would finally deliver long-sought cash to businesses and individuals and uh, resources to vaccinate a nation confronting a frightening surge in COVID-19 cases and death cases and deaths. 
Lawmakers also tacked on a $1.4 trillion catch-all spending bill, that's the omnibus bill, and thousands of pages of other end-of-session business in a massive bundle of bipartisan legislation as Capitol Hill prepared to close the books on the year. The bill approved on Monday night went to President Donald Trump for his signature, which was expected in the coming days until, and it was expected on behalf of the world, on behalf of Democrats, and most importantly, on behalf of the Republicans who negotiated for him, both McConnell in the Senate and Steven Mnuchin, who he just threw under the bus, and even conservatives, not only for the philosophy of contradicting what his negotiators argued, but also just for the sake of human decency, are calling Trump out uh, for throwing Mnuchin under the bus. One of the important lines in this entire article from the AP is that six GOP senators voted against the bill initially. Marsha Blackburn of Tennessee, Ted Cruz of Texas, Rand Paul of Kentucky, Rick Scott of Florida, Mike Lee of Utah, and Ron Johnson of Wisconsin. Now, what do these fine people have in common? Uh, these guys are some of the most stalwart conservatives in Congress. Not only are they are they Republicans, they are just ex- they're pretty extremely conservative. I would say that they are the some of the most right of the right in Congress, particularly Rand Paul, who is very anti-spending in all forms on many things. I remember there was a bill to aid some some individuals, and there was a program, federally subsidized program about uh, 9-11 and the victims of 9-11 and supporting those victims, and he was opposed to it as a Republican because he was concerned about uh, the additions of that program, which were relatively small, to the national debt. And Basically, any concern, you know, he, he's very anti-federal spending, as most conservatives would be. Uh, but anyway, back to the, the votes that they made on this bill. Uh, they all voted against the bill in the Senate. And you may think that this was a coordinated effort, because as I said before, Trump rejected the bill. Uh, he threatened to veto it, essentially, in a press conference that was very unexpected the day after. Uh, you may think that, oh, maybe you know, because Rand Paul and Ted Cruz and Ron Johnson and Rick Scott are all vocal Trump supporters that are, have at least at, at some points been Trump supporters, you may think that they would coordinate this effort and that this was something that is just the far right of the far right speaking out, you know, of the Trump support. But no, the president and these six Republicans had drastically different reasons for rejecting this bill, and there really was absolutely no coordination. In fact, it would probably be the opposite of coordination. It's just a complete lack of coordination. If you listen to the end of, uh, of last episode, you may remember I went through the conservative and liberal economic philosophy that would probably inform the way that lawmakers would vote on this bill. And all of that was inspired. In fact, the only reason I went through it uh, was because of the odd division in this country between the Congressional Republican establishment and Donald J. Trump. The division between Donald J. Trump as a character, as a person, and what he believes, what his policies are, in some cases, not most cases, but some cases, and the Republican establishment. Because, as I have said trillions of times, Donald Trump knows nothing about the policy, I would argue. I don't know, you know, maybe his advisors give him three sentences, but he, like most presidents have passed, does not write the policy. He probably doesn't really know much about conservatism. He's really just a huge resistance to the the liberal establishment. That's why he was voted. It was not because of his policies. There are very few uh, Trump supporters, or at least hardcore Trump supporters, as in people who literally attend his rallies for whatever reason, that uh, seriously believe that his that conservative policy is something that, you know, that's the number one reason that they support him. It's really just more because he is a troll, and, you know, he sort of can relate 
in a, in a sense, I believe. That is sort of why. It's more to fight, as conservatives call it, the culture war. Nothing at all to do with governing conservatively, although I do think that governing conservatively and talking straightforward and being a trustworthy individual does attract to the main centrist America, uh, and that should have been a more of a campaign strategy for him if he wanted to win. Of course, he couldn't help himself, and that is why I believe, in, in large part, he lost. Anyway, I back to this whole liberal and conservative economic philosophy that would may or may not inform the way that lawmakers would vote on the uh, the COVID bill and the omnibus package. All of it was inspired by the division of Trump. So the division really rooted on a tweet that Trump uh, tweeted out on Friday, which is the Monday before the stimulus bill was voted on very late at night by Congress. Trump tweeted out, why isn't Congress giving our people a stimulus bill? It wasn't their fault. It was the fault of China. Get it done, all in caps, and give them more money and direct payments. Okay, so this is a, a direct contradiction between Trump and the Republican establishment. And really, it's a contradiction on behalf of Trump of all of conservatism and conservative philosophy. As I talked about last episode, conservative economic philosophy essentially states that corporations and businesses are made of people because they hire people, and by people I mean like the working class, factory workers, people, just normal, middle class, average people. So in order to have a strong working class and incentivize employers to stay in the United States, says a conservative, we need to tax the corporations and essentially everyone less, or at least relatively less, because the benefits of corporations and the people they employ staying in America and promoting free market activity will supposedly trickle down to the working class and allow those businesses to promote hard workers based on merit, and the cycle will continue and eventually uh, people, you know, the free market will do its work and and people will just automatically be employed by virtue of less government. Democrats, however, prefer to, as I like to say, bypass the trickle that conservatives fantasize about. They want more money in direct payments of all kinds generally, whether we're talking about COVID-19 or not, in the omnibus bill, and uh, within everything with spending. Generally, they want increased social programs, higher taxes for the rich, uh, that sort of thing, both rich individuals and rich corporations. And they want more taxes and less bailouts on big businesses, industries, and corporations too, because their argument is that these rich institutions uh, that need to pay their fair, they, they need to pay their fair share because it's insane that, you know, millions of people are in poverty in America while Amazon paid zero dollars in federal income tax and there's a bunch of rich multimillionaires and billionaires who just shelter their money offshore. Uh, there's differing, I went through actually pretty extensively how I felt about each economic philosophy and the strengths and the pros and the cons and the weaknesses of uh, each one. So if you want to listen to that, feel free to uh, listen to the last episode if you did not. Uh, but anyway, I'm just, I, I recite this whole economic philosophy overview just to inform and perhaps give insight to how Trump who is obviously a Republican and conservative Republican who has conservative voters and Republican voters would go about uh, approaching a stimulus bill because a stimulus bill as a concept really is not at all a conservative thing. It, it is actually the opposite of conservatives. Conservatives believe that the, that basically the economy itself will work without any government intervention, without any stimulus, without any aid, whether domestic or foreign, to the people within the country. And uh, that's what Rand Paul said. We're going to talk about that in a second. You would think, though, as as a conservative, Trump 
would be anti-individual payments because I just talked about that trickle-down theory that if you if you tax the corporations less, if you have if you have less burdens on businesses to open and operate freely without any government intervention, then you know the the economy will do its trick and you let things open but be safe about it. Then that's sort of how the the it'll just work out automatically, essentially, without any government interventions. Therefore, they would, it just sort of eradicates the need for a stimulus package or any sort of government intervention, whether positive or negative, through taxes or through stimuluses. So why on earth, with all that in mind, would you think or want to know why Trump is tweeting out, requesting on behalf of Congress, for Congress to give, to quote, give them more money in indirect payments? I don't know. It, this is the confusing stuff with Trump. I think he's. I, people say that he's trying to go out uh, of office on a good, on a high note for his voters and uh, for just people to remember him as the person who pushed for individual payments. But the thing is, you know, the, the conservatives generally are anti-stimulus and especially anti-individual payments. The whole thing that the Democrats were trying to do were, were increase the individual payments behind closed doors with the, with uh, these negotiations. The conservatives were trying to lower them or just lower the stimulus cost overall because $900 billion, it is a lot of money. And conservatives, uh, by virtue of their name, are conservative about spending money of any sort on behalf of the government. So with all of that in mind, you would think, like many Republicans, Trump would be in favor with sticking with them and sort of going against increasing the money in individual payments. The agreed-upon amount between Democrats and Republicans, the amount of money that was set to be in individual payments from Congress to or from the government to uh, citizens who meet the criteria, were $600. Trump said, nope, $600 is not enough. So he increased it, and he said, I don't want this. I don't want $600. I want $2,000. And that's what Democrats were pushing for. Republicans were, were fine with 600. Democrats were fine with 600. But then, of course, Trump goes in and delays the bill, but then eventually ends up just signing it with the 600 because uh, it's, it's a smart political move and the Democrats already uh, agree to it. Nonetheless, the Democrats and the Republicans uh, are working right now to try and edit the bill before and uh, as it's going out to increase the number to 2,000. But anyway, back to this contradictory move and really surprising move to both his politics, to his philosophy, to his negotiators. Trump just went out on the, to the White House in the East Room, I believe. Uh, actually, I don't know if it was in the East Room, but it was in the White House where he blasts Democrats for taking too long to get it through Congress and then ends up agreeing with their politics, which is just the oddest Trump, Trump-esque thing to do. Throughout the summer, Democrats cruelly blocked COVID relief legislation in an effort to advance their extreme left-wing agenda and influence the election. Then, a few months ago, Congress started negotiations on a new package to get urgently needed help to the American people. It's taken forever. However, the bill they are now planning to send back to my desk is much different than anticipated. It really is a disgrace. Okay, so he's... <laughs> He says, "What did he, he said something? He said something a very negative connotation to left-wing agenda." Let's listen to that first part one more time. Throughout the summer, Democrats cruelly blocked COVID relief legislation 
in an effort to advance their extreme left-wing agenda. Okay, and their left-wing agenda, which I'm about to agree with. <laughs> it is very amusing. He literally, the left-wing agenda, perhaps the culmination of the left-wing agenda, particularly within the stimulus bill, is the increase, the demand for increase in individual payments. Rashida, Til oh, sorry, uh, Ilhan Omar and uh, Alexand Senator Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, or not Senator, sorry, Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and Representative Ilhan Omar drafted legislation to increase the number of payments in advance of Trump even saying this, and he's calling their, he's just blabbering about, and very negatively blabbering about, the uh, negative connotations of a left-wing agenda, yet he's also agreeing with it. He's blaming it, but he's agreeing with it. Him calling the bill the disgrace also, or a disgrace, as he just said, is, and then acting like he, he or his team, or Congress, or his Treasury Secretary had no idea what was going to be sent back to his desk, is wholeheartedly dishonest. It is It is probably one of the most dishonest things that I've seen Trump actually do. You, you've, you will see conservatives from Fox News, from institutions that are very conservatively bent across the board, calling Trump dishonest and calling him out here for this blatant lie. He acted, he said, what they sent to my desk is completely different. Remember, you just heard that in the clip? He knew exactly what was going to be in this bill. And so did congressional Republicans. I say that, you know, objectively without any exaggeration. They knew exactly what was going to be in this bill. In fact, before all of this bashing the bill nonsense on behalf of Trump happened, even before the bill passed Congress in advance of the, the previous episode of this podcast, Steven Mnuchin, the United States Treasury Secretary and one of Trump's top people and one of his top negotiators, he was on the floor literally overseeing and facilitating the negotiations between Democrats and Republicans in Congress, literally said that the money would be ready to go next week and essentially implied that he, as a top-ranking member of the Trump administration, was under the impression that Trump was going to sign this bill and that there'd be no problem because he oversaw the negotiations. Basically, he implied that Trump was going to sign the bill. Uh, and this was in advance of the bill even passing Congress, even getting to his desk. Let me emphasize... That people are going to see this money the beginning of next week. So it's very fast. Uh, it's money that gets recirculated in the economy. So people go out and spend this money, and that helps small business, and that helps getting more people back to work. That clip aired on December 21st, 2020. Uh, Trump, Trump's angry speech, which, I, which you heard in the beginning and uh, just moments ago, that was on December 22nd. So Mnuchin was out there publicly praising the efforts of what Congress did and what uh, the, basically what a Trump-allied institution did. Yet Trump, the next day, was going out there, unbeknownst to Mnuchin, I would assume, uh, criticizing him and everything that he did and everything that he, that Mnuchin, and Republicans and Democrats worked very hard for the, over the course of months to actually achieve and get a compromise on. All of this, the hypocrisy of Trump here, drew widespread criticism, obviously from the left, but also even from right-wing pundits, both on policy, on philosophy, and on what Fox News anchor Brett Baer described as Trump throwing Mnuchin under the bus. And that is precisely what he did. And I thought Brett Baer's analysis of this was very good. President Trump is throwing his Treasury Secretary, Stephen Mnuchin, under the bus. Uh, Mnuchin has been in the conversation for months with leadership about how this was going to go and what compromise they could agree to, and finally getting to this compromise that was passed through both chambers, and now the president's saying, it's not good enough for me. He so this is why we see, and that's, he's exactly right. 
this is why we see, as I like to call it, and this is why the title of this episode is Confusing Division, we see a huge confusing division, a huge gap between Trump, Trump land, Trump policy, uh, well, not always Trump policy, but some Trump policy, particularly this one, and conservatives, conservative establishment, and really conservative philosophy. This is perhaps a, a an emblem, as I said before, about uh, how, the, how Trump has governed. It's very, very confusing. Uh, and uh, like I said, in a hard right, ideal conservative land, just to further point out the division that Trump has caused between himself, conservative pundits, congressional Republicans, the Republican establishment, conservatives as a mindset, conservative philosophy, <laughs> Republican philosophy, and most importantly, the American people, there are people in his own party, like Rand Paul, who voted against the bill as a Republican senator, saying and advocating for the complete destruction of the bill, saying that there's no need for a stimulus bill like this because he's concerned as with he as he is with almost everything that is talked about that has to do with spending, with it uh, impacting and adding to the national debt. So here's what Rand Paul had to say. And remember, this is the same guy who's in the party of the president who then the president is advocating and wishing and hoping for more direct payments in indiv for individuals, which would probably be the single largest increase in the worth and addition to the national debt of the bill, which Rand Paul, of course, wants to destroy. Here it is. The monster spending bill presented today is not just a deficits don't matter disaster. It is everything Republicans say they don't believe in. This bill is free money for everyone. Proponents don't care if you're fully employed or own your own house, or own your own business. Free money for everyone, they cry. Okay, so he is right, and uh, on the first part. Uh, well, actually, perhaps the only part that he's right on is the, the, um, the well, first of all, I want to say that I am pro-stimulus in this case, because people are, like, really hurting right now. You look at the statistics, 8 million people have fallen into poverty as a result of coronavirus in America, more and more, it might be even more than that, more and more people are every single day. People have lost their businesses. This we need a stimulus right now, and more, I am a hundred percent in favor of more direct payments because uh, the national debt can be cured. And I know this sounds horrible, but it can be cured over time. And perhaps the return on investment of putting down the stimulus money, if you use it effectively, which I don't know if it really is being used effectively in this bill, that's up for Congress to debate. Uh, but I do think that America needs a stimulus bill. I think it is a radical conservative idea to demolish the stimulus bill, which 94 other, or sorry, 94 other senators agreed to, but Rand Paul being the hard right outsider, along with the five other uh, GOP senators who voted against the bill, doesn't agree with that. Uh, interestingly, the idea of a complete destruction and the radical destruction of the stimulus bill on behalf of hard right Republicans crossed Chuck Schumer's mind, who of course is a uh, de lifelong Democrat. He made a little crack at those far right Republicans in uh, announcing alongside uh, Mitch McConnell that the bill had been finally agreed upon uh, between Mitch McConnell and Chuck Schumer uh, and the, each their respective branches of uh, the Senate. The agreement on this package could be summed up by the expression, better late than never, although I know many of my Republican colleagues wished it was never. Okay, so I think many perhaps is a stretch because there were dozens who did vote in favor of the bill. Uh, I would say six because only six people voted in favor of the bill. 
that is sort of where we see the division here within the Republican Party, the subdivisions within Rand Paul and Mitch McConnell, Mitch McConnell and Chuck Schumer, Chuck Schumer and Nancy Pelosi, Nancy Pelosi and Donald Trump. I mean, it goes on and on and on. And to circle back to Trump, the true emblem of division on your own side is when the enemy agrees with you. Nancy Pelosi, the sworn enemy of Donald J. Trump, supposedly, and the Republican establishment, responded to Trump's fiery anti-conservative speech, which we just talked about, uh, where he just basically blamed, as I said, the left-wing agenda that he is also agreeing with in terms of the stimulus bill. Uh, Nancy Pelosi tweeted out in response to that very video, which has 33 million views on Twitter, saying, quote, Republicans repeatedly refused to say what amount the president wanted for direct checks. Uh, because they didn't know. There was no coordinated effort. There is a complete disconnect between the Trump administration, both structurally and philosophically, in my opinion, between <laughs> the uh, conservative establishment in, that is sitting in the halls of Congress right now and the president and his administration. Nancy Pelosi said in a tweet, At last, the president has agreed to $2,000. Democrats are ready to bring this to the floor this week by unanimous consent. Let's do it! Exclamation point. Okay, so like I said, in an ideal Republican town, this bill wouldn't even exist, which is why we are seeing this very interesting poker game being played between Nancy Pelosi and Republicans right now. This is the first, this this really was the, the first move in this entire poker game. The first move in the poker game, uh, actually, this is probably the second move. The first move was Trump announcing his resistance to the stimulus bill that would make its way to his desk, which was very confusing and off-putting to probably a lot of uh, conservative intellectuals, and then Nancy Pelosi agreeing with them, and then, so that was the second part, Nancy Pelosi agreeing with them. Then the third and really hardcore political poker move was from the very sly Lindsey Graham, uh, who said, he who, <laughs> who tweeted in response to Nancy Pelosi, saying, that he appreciates, quote, the fact that Speaker Pelosi supports President Trump's idea to increase direct payments to $2,000 per person. I'm sure he, his, you know, he, that's just flat-out lie. I really don't think that he appreciates that fact, because I don't think on policy he would agree with Trump on any of this. He then says, though, very sneakily, I hope Speaker Pelosi will agree with President Trump that big tech needs to be reined in by winding down Section 230 liability protections, which is all about big tech and the censorship wars and uh, all of those issues. He says, I have no reason to believe this combination will lead to President Trump supporting the NDAA and COVID-19 omnibus bills. Let's go big for the American people. So if we highlight that first paragraph, I hope Speaker Pelosi will agree with President Trump that big tech needs to be reined in by winding down Section 230 liability protections. That is Lindsey Graham trying to kill the bill. <laughs> he is. He says, I appreciate this fact. I want the bill to go. Let's go big for the American people. But also, I want the bill to die alongside, uh, but I'm closeted about it. Whereas Rand Paul is very out front saying, this is precisely what I want. I want the bill to die. And I'm, cons I'm, ac I'm advocating on behalf of my conservative uh, constituencies. So, my read on this, 100%, is that Graham wanted to kill the bill. And really, I think the rest of the Republican establishment secretly wants to kill this bill. The way they do that, in my opinion, is by doing what he just said, what he just did. He, he, he said, look, Democrats, Trump, all of a sudden, he wants $2,000 in direct payments. So you have that going for you. Now, give us what we want. We want decreased regulation on big tech's role in censoring free speech. We want this. We want that. If I was a Democrat, I'd just concede to what Graham is trying to do here and play him at his own game. 
politically and practically speaking, you know, the $2,000 checks are a lot more valuable than Democrats holding on to minor provisions in a Section 230 bill surrounding social media censorship, especially when, in my opinion, that's sort of, I mean, it's a big deal, you know, to conservatives, and it shouldn't really be, I think free speech should always sort of be uh, the, the, the side that people should take. But $2,000 checks during a pandemic versus, you know, a couple liability protections in Section 230, uh, I got to go for the the, the $2,000 stimulus checks there. And uh, I would 100% concede to Lindsey Graham and then make it, you know, you see the game between this, right? I mean, Lindsey Graham hoped that they would just concede to that and uh, the bill would be gone. But if you say, okay, we'll do what you said, then he'll be just sort of caught off guard, but also would be forced to be grateful because they conceded to his demands. So it's a very interesting political poker game. Uh, and it gets even more interesting because progressive New York Senator Alexander, or, uh, Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and uh, Democrat Senator Chuck Schumer uh, uh, joined the topic of conversation on Twitter when AOC said, let's do it. Rashida Tlaib and I already co-wrote the COVID amendment for $2,000 checks, so it's ready to go. Glad to see the president is willing to support our legislation. <laughs> okay, so do you see how this is just so messed up in terms of Trump land? Trump, who has publicly criticized AOC, publicly, who basically, who pence on the debate stage, I mean, you think of the number one AOC hater in the world, Donald J. Trump comes to mind, but then you have her and him agreeing on policy and economic policy of all things. I mean, <laughs> this is the most backwards thing ever. So anyway, Chuck Schumer, and I'm saying politically, not not policy-wise, just Donald Trump and AOC agreeing on something. Is that really something that you would expect to see, Is particularly on economic policy during a crisis? Uh, if you asked me that two years ago, I would have said, no way. 2020, having AOC and Donald Trump agreeing on economic policy in the middle of a pandemic? No way. Anyway, Chuck Schumer retweeted AOC saying, I'm in. What do you say, Mitch? Referring to Mitch McConnell. Let's not get bogged down with ideological offsets and unrelated items and just do this. The American people deserve it. Okay, so what happens next in terms of this COVID-19 relief bill? Well, ideally for the Democrats, Kevin McCarthy, who's the Republican House Minority Leader, who will inevitably and predictably run for president one day, as I've predicted for more than a year, uh, has agreed to the uh, would agree to the Democrats' unanimous consent proposal, and then the bill would uh, officially be ratified, so to speak, and the money would soon go out. It has since been revealed, and this hadn't happened as I was writing this, so this is how crazy this whole winding road of the stimulus bill being passed uh, has been. Uh, Trump actually ended up signing it, so he protested all these things. He said he wanted two thousand dollar checks. He went through uh, a large amount of the flaws that he found within the omnibus bill, which I'm going to talk about in a second, but then he ends up signing it. So all of the protesting that he did, the threatening to veto it, the threatening to send it back, all of it did nothing except delay the bill from actually, uh, for, for, sorry, the bill's benefits from going into the hands of the American people. So Trump was the delayer in chief in this particular piece of legislation. Uh, and when I say this particular piece of legislation, I'm not only talking about the, uh, COVID-19 package, the stimulus $900 billion package. I'm also talking about the omnibus $1.4 trillion yearly spending bill. So at the same time that this whole COVID-19 
bill and negotiations about the direct payments are going on, the coinciding omnibus bill is causing lots of confusion in the nation's capital. To briefly explain and eradicate any confusion that has been caused, I will reiterate what I said at the beginning of this episode. Both of these bills, the omnibus and the COVID bill, are uh, separate. They're being passed together, though, for the sake of efficiencies. So the COVID-19 relief package is reportedly about $900 billion, and the year-end omnibus bill, which is, in essence, an amalgamation of a number of policies and a bunch of random things all jammed together to fund the government uh, for the year of 21. It's just a routine thing. So the National Conference of State Legislators uh, has a site detailing the many, many, many billions and billions and billions of dollars into the trillions allocated for various industries in this government funding package, which you can find at the show notes at j-shorty.com slash 141. And uh, they go through each section. It's divided between agriculture, commerce, defense, education, energy, environment, uh, the FCC, FEMA, uh, Federal Trade Commissions, financial services, homeland security, health and human services, housing and urban development, interior, justice, labor, technology, transportation, and Army Corps of Engineers, Treasury, Veterans Affairs, and tax provisions. So all of that is very complicated. I think the entire uh, bill is like 6,000 pages they had to wheel it over onto carts across uh, the uh, con- the halls of Congress. So Trump's problem with it, is seemingly, is that the uh, with the entire COVID bill, other than the individual payments that he complained about, the them being too uh, small, which is just the most confusing thing I've ever heard come out of the mouth of a conservative. Uh, the thing that he's had the most problems with, though, if that's not enough, is the... $1.4 trillion portion of the larger and total $2.3 trillion duo of bills that is passing Congress right now. So $1.4 trillion is the omnibus, $900 billion is the uh, COVID-19 relief bill. They're two separate things, uh, and that's sort of what is happening right now. But the problem is, or the, the problem Trump has with uh, the entire overall bill, which we can just just call it Bill A, for example, which encompasses both, is the majority of the problems lie within the $1.4 trillion portion of the larger bill. So Trump, on a fundamental level, uh, does not seem to understand the difference, though. Neither does, I don't think, and maybe I'm not doing a good job articulating it, but the media uh, also does not seem to understand that these are two separate bills, Uh, or at least they don't articulate that as clearly in some of their articles. They have clarified, they have fact-checked, they have corrected Trump on this, generally speaking, but the the reality is that these bills are two separate things that are being pushed together in a special, unique case because of coronavirus right now. So anyway, Trump doesn't understand the difference because he, he said that the bill <laughs> is a COVID relief bill, but it has almost nothing to do with COVID, but then he read off the the other bill that that actually is not about COVID. It was designed to have nothing to do with COVID. Here's what he said. It's called the COVID relief bill. But it has almost nothing to do with COVID. Okay, that's just, it's not true. The omnibus bill, which is designed and is routinely having nothing to do with coronavirus because coronavirus didn't exist in 2018, 17, 16, 15, 14, throughout of all of American history. It, it just, I mean, th- this is a routine thing that happens. It's to fund the government. He's had omnibus bills cross his desk before, but he's confusing. He's messing up the difference between uh, the omnibus bill and the uh, the uh, co- the COVID nineteen stimulus, the twenty nine the twenty twenty stimulus that is going out right now. So nonetheless, it would not matter though because if he hypothetically chose to veto one, 
uh, he would have to veto another one. Like, he'd have to veto, if he wanted to veto the Omnibus one, he'd have to veto the COVID one because they're jammed together. If he wanted to veto the COVID one, he'd have to veto the Omnibus one. So, it really doesn't matter, but for the sake of accuracy and uh, just understanding the difference between how these things work legislatively, I think it's important to point out that uh, the that these are two separate things. His particular problem, though, is other than his non-conservative desire to see the checks increase from $600 to $200 uh, in the COVID-19 relief bill, his main problem is within the government funding omnibus bill. Why? Because he thinks there are a lot of frivolous and non-nationalistic policy in there that violates his America First policy mindset. At least that's my read on it. Uh, What you're about to hear is a very funny rant from Trump in his most recent speech about this topic, in which he squawks about the admittedly relatively useless provisions in the bill, especially when the alternative would be giving money to the American people. So, to reiterate, Trump insinuates that all of these funny things he reads off are a part of the COVID-19 relief bill. They are not. They have nothing to do with the COVID relief bill other than the fact that they're jammed together in one piece of legislation, but they're two separate bills. So he insinuates right after he said, like, this is literally, I just paused the tape. Right after he said the thing about how the COVID-19 relief bill and the Omni, uh, how the COVID-19 relief bill has nothing to do with COVID, he says all this stuff, implying, actually directly stating that the COVID-19 relief bill contains all of these things. That is not true. So what you're about to hear are... Uh, provisions that are a part of the other omnibus bill that Congress is trying to, or I guess Hardy has now, routine passed, but alongside this one. So without further ado, here is Mr. Trump. This bill contains $85.5 million for assistance to Cambodia, $134 million to Burma, $1.3 billion for Egypt and the Egyptian military, which will go out and buy almost exclusively Russian military equipment. $25 million for democracy and gender programs in Pakistan. $505 million to Belize, Costa Rica, El Salvador, Guatemala, Honduras, Nicaragua, and Panama. $40 million for the Kennedy Center in Washington, D.C., which is not even open for business. $1 billion for the Smithsonian and an additional $154 million for the National Gallery of Art. Likewise, these facilities are essentially not open. $7 million for reef fish management, $25 million to combat Asian carp, $2.5 million to count the number of amberjack fish in the Gulf of Mexico a provision to promote the breeding of fish in federal hatcheries, $3 million in poultry production technology, $2 million to research the impact of downed trees, $566 million for construction projects at the FBI. The bill also allows stimulus checks for the family members of illegal aliens, allowing them to get up to $1,800 each this is far more than the Americans are given. Okay, so the, he again he blent at that last sentence about how quote unquote illegal aliens are getting parts of the stimulus check checks. He is blending the two together for the most part. Ninety five percent of it, he's just incorrectly citing and saying that it's about the COVID nineteen bill. 
It simply is not. It is the omnibus bill. There are two separate things being passed uh, together. So that's all that's funny, and the stuff about him talking about counting the number of amberjack fish in the Gulf of Mexico and going through and just squawking there, going into very specific portions of the bill and criticizing them, for the most part, is actually a, a good thing to do, in my opinion. I think politicians should do that more frequently, to be honest. I think they should cite specific policy concerns and things and then talk, tell the American people why specifically they're vetoing it. But, again... This is how weird that is. In the same speech where he's telling people, telling the world that he wants more money in direct payments, he also is criticizing the increase and large portions of foreign aid in the omnibus bill. The lack of foreign aid, the uh, the you know the drive to neglect foreign aid is a very conservative thing. But in the same speech, he wants more direct payments to uh, American people to the American people, so his concern at all is just completely, with conservative conservatism, is just completely out the door. So I'd like to reiterate that he misidentifies the COVID-19 bill with the omnibus bill on purpose for political points. I don't know why he would actually do that, I don't know why his advisors wouldn't correct him or at least make it clear, because it makes really no sense to actually do something like that that's just objectively untrue and pre-written. He was reading off of a teleprompter that had explicitly incorrect information uh, that he identified as incorrect as well. He also said that, that what they gave him was nothing as he expected. That is just simply not true. Mnuchin and his team knew specifically what was going to be in that bill, and it was anticipated even before, and it was implied on behalf of Trump's people directly that Trump was going to sign it. He then did not. He protested for a couple days, almost a week I think, or not, not almost a week, couple days though, and then he finally caved and signed it right before the government would actually have to shut down. So while it looked as if he was going to perhaps do some good for, uh, for what people on the left would consider good, it ended up that he just delayed the bill. He actually achieved absolutely nothing in his rhetoric and his ranting there. So that is the stimulus package story on behalf of me to you, and that's a very interesting story because it's something really that just is in a way, classic Trump, but also not classic Trump, because he is so pro, uh, you know, conservative on many things, policy-wise and rhetoric-wise, but then on direct payments, he's not. Very interesting. Uh, so coming up, we'll talk about the disparities of COVID the COVID-19 vaccine, and it's not between demographics like age, race, ethnicity, or gender, as you may think. It's between politicians and their subordinate muggles like you and me. <laughs> We'll talk about all that and more next on the JDory Podcast. You're listening to the JDory Podcast on the JD Media Network. Welcome back, everyone. This is the J. Dorty Podcast on the J.D. Media Network, streaming live now Wednesday, December 30th. It is past midnight. It's uh, 12.14 a.m. on Wednesday, December 30th, 2020. Thank you very much for being here. So, we return to our conversation on a different topic here between 
uh, about COVID still, but not about the, the stimulus, about the age-long struggle between the general public and the elites, and the elites of Washington specifically. It, this whole struggle has inevitably resurfaced in the context of COVID-19 and vaccine distribution. The issue at play here in this particular scenario is that Young, healthy congressmen, governors, mayors, elected officials, etc., are getting the COVID-19 vaccine before anyone else. Certain people see this as a good thing because it promotes public confidence in the vaccine, uh, and other people see it as a power grab by the elite that removes the concept of prioritization from those who need it most, and uh, those who need it most are, of course, the elderly people with pre-existing conditions, or both. Uh, so... My position on this, whether the politicians should do it as a sign of good faith in the vaccine in the scientific community versus uh, them stealing it from people who actually need it, is as follows. Politicians should be treated like every other person on the planet in almost every case. This country and democracy was designed, in my opinion, so that the electorate is equal or even uh, above in terms of holding their politicians accountable, those that they elect. Older politicians should get it because they happen to be in the elderly category, just as their non-politician twin brother should be able to get it in the exact same order. That rule applies to every age and every person with pre-existing conditions out there, in my opinion. Millennial politicians with no pre-existing conditions that make them qualified to receive the vaccine, and most Gen Xers with no pre-existing conditions, should not at all be ahead of a person above the age of 60 without or with pre-existing conditions, period. Simple logic. That's my opinion. But not to everyone. <laughs> Uh, and who's the opposite of everyone? The political elite, at least some members of it. According to the Washington Post, when Vice President Mike Pence and his wife bared their arms on national television to receive the coronavirus vaccine, a doctor just miles away who treats patients stricken with COVID-19 was still waiting for a dose of prevention. The internal medicine resident at MedStar Georgetown University Hospital watched with frustration last week as inoculations were administered to scores of government leaders, including lawmakers who refused to wear masks and Trump administration officials who minimized the pandemic, while she and her colleagues were initially left unprotected because their hospital had received fewer than 1,000 doses of the scarce resource. Okay, that, that is an absolute problem. Seeing a doctor who is treating and could save dozens, if not hundreds of people's lives versus Mike Pence or... Any politician out there getting the vaccine, uh, that is really enraging because it should just be on who is in the order that these places are trying to, uh, th that are, th that that the order that is recommended by the CDC or whatever the order that the state is going in or whatever provision is actually being uh, overseen and uh, basically enforced uh, on a statewide level or on a municipality. So... Of the elites who have been vaccinated first, there is uh, Mike Pence, as we just said, uh, Iowa Senator Joni, Joni Erst, South Carolina Senator Lindsey Graham, uh, Indiana Senator Todd Young, Ron DeSantis, Florida Governor, Iowa Governor Kim Reynolds, uh, and others. Uh, let's see, who else is out there? Marco Rubio also got it. Uh, there's a controversial tweet. He said, uh, I know I looked away from the needle, and yes, I know I need a tan, but I'm so confident that the COVID-19 vaccine is safe and effective that I decided to take it myself. Now, of course, he got bombarded on Twitter. Uh, comments vary from, why do you get to skip the line ahead of healthcare workers? Uh, you know, 
all these, these just negative tweets about him. There's also positive ones. Some people disagree. There's actually a good portion of people that disagree uh, with this. I am not one of them. I am I am of the strong position that politicians uh, are equal to the public, uh, and they should be in the exact same line as if they were not a politician, because it's just simple logic, in my opinion. Another one of, unfortunately, many examples of this is when uh, Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, who's a Democrat of New York, 14th District, got the vaccine and then was called out by many Republicans and Democrats, not only Democrats, but indirectly one of her progressive allies and member of the squad, the squad Ilhan Omar. So AOC posted some media of her getting the vaccine uh, on various mediums, and then Ilhan Omar tweeted out, it, it would make sense if it was age, but unfortunately, it's of importance and it's shameful. Now, this is not, I want to make this very clear, not in direct response to uh, AOC, but just, I'm just reading what she has to say. We are not more important than frontline workers, teachers, etc. By the way, she did misspell uh, then, it should be T-H-A-N, not T-H-E-N, I, not just pointing out her, Trump makes mistakes like this all the time, uh, who are making sacrifices every day, which is why I won't take it. People who need it most should get it. 100% agree with her. 100%. And just for the sake of uh, political equilibrium, many Republicans, for example, South Carolina Representative Nancy Mace, tweeted out, Congress shouldn't be putting themselves first in line for the COVID-19 vaccination when the average American can't get it. For as long as the vaccines are limited, we should prioritize health care and frontline workers and every person at greater risk, especially the elderly. I've had COVID already, and I know it is a serious illness, she says. I want to help uh, make sure others get it, especially those who are most vulnerable. I'll wait my turn in line with the rest of my constituents when the vaccine becomes available for the rest of us. And yes, I will get it. That should be the response. And this is a Republican woman who has had COVID. She's saying that people should be waiting, and the, 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 her fellow congressional uh, individuals, Congress people, should be waiting in line along with the rest of the American public. I completely agree. Uh, and as I said, there have been varying degrees of strong responses uh, from politicians in Washington, D.C. Some people say, oh, I don't really care, it's just one dose. Some people say, oh, like, you, a politician should definitely get it because it shows confidence in the vaccine and there's f little confidence in the vaccine and them getting it, you know, increases my confidence. There's really no middle ground of people in this debate, though, in terms of people who hold the opinions. However, people like me who believe that the elderly and those who most need it should get it first are sort of the ones uh, who are the strongest and most fiercest defenders of their opinions, uh, both pub and the you know privately and publicly. One example of this, as we talked about yeah, uh, in the last episode, was from a very moderate Democrat, Tulsi Gabbard, who said the following in a Twitter rant, basically saying that, uh, it should be of no question, 100%, that uh, that the elderly and people who need it most should get the vaccine before any politician even dared to uh, stick a needle in their arm that contained the COVID-19 vaccine. Heartless, arrogant, unelected CDC bureaucrats have decided that the lives of elderly Americans just don't count. Now, for months, the CDC has been telling us that the elderly are the most vulnerable but now they are recommending that 100 million so-called essential workers, which means healthy people working at everything from liquor stores to telephone companies, that they can get the vaccine before our grandparents can. That members of Congress like me, we can get the vaccine before at-risk seniors can. 
people like my aunt who is is imprisoned in her own home because of the danger that if she catches the disease, she could die. This is immoral and bad health policy. I had planned to take the vaccine, but will now stand in solidarity with our seniors by not doing so until they can. I urge my colleagues in Congress who are under the age of 65 and healthy to join me. Okay, that's definitely a good response to it. And thankfully, the CDC did change their recommendations after criticism from uh, Tulsi Gabbard and many others. So that is uh, definitely a good thing. Uh, And on this topic overall, I'm in complete agreement with Gabbard, with Mace, with Omar, and the rest of the Congress people who chose to wait in the normal people's line for the vaccine. I mean, as I said before, uh, you know, whoever, like the the, the twin brother of the politician, or the twin sister of the politician, or the twin sibling of any kind uh, of the politician should be exactly in the same place as the politician themselves. It is a hundred, like, they should not be treated any differently. And the reason I say twin brothers or twin sister or whatever is because uh, they would have the same characteristics, presumably, obviously, of age, but also of hopefully everything else. Um, I, I just think it's an obvious answer. The politician should be in the same exact. And same with the rich and same with anyone who has, same with the doctors, same with anyone who has special access, doctors, families. The line should be the line and the line should be formed by elected people, not unelected people. And uh, that should be the line that is followed. So I'm in complete agreement with all these people. The The main and really only argument I've heard from those who disagree with me on this is confidence is built when the politicians take the virus. <laughs> I don't have any... So here two questions, that or two, two statements I would respond to that argument with because I completely disagree with it. Number one, do you really have any confidence at all in your politicians to do anything for you? I mean, I'm sort of joking here, but not really. (laughs) Like, do you really, I don't really have more confidence in the vaccine if Donald Trump gets it versus, or, or any president really, or any politician gets it. And number two, this is far more important than that little political smear. Confidence is built when you see evidence of the vaccine working at a large scale. And we will hopefully see uh, that confidence is built shortly as a result of a large proportion of the uh, public being vaccinated. And hopefully we see that confidence spike as a result of simply a large number of people being vaccinated. Uh, In the meantime, though, if you've been vaccinated or not been vaccinated, if you are in the line or not in the line, please, please, please wear a mask and be safe. Uh, I would really appreciate it if you do that as a public service to yourself and to uh, people around you. The phone number for this podcast is 312-625-8492. You can receive emails and newsletter updates at j-dory.com slash newsletter. Read and listen to show notes and episode highlights at j-dory.com. Clips and highlights at thedoryfiles.com. The audio clips from this episode were from the White House, CNBC, Fox News, C-SPAN, and Twitter. Music was from Manaldin. Complete credit and link to hear the full song can be found at j-dory.com slash 141. Jingles were from Jam Creative Productions. This has been a JD Media Network production. Thank you so much for listening.
Jay Doherty podcast streams exclusively on the JD Media Network. Commercial-free quality audio 24-7. The Jay Doherty podcast, a JD Media Network production. Copyright Jay Doherty 2020. Thanks for listening. Explain the JD Media Network.